We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Romans, and we're into the meat of the letter. We're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 16. And last week, those who were with us last week know we started with a sweeping condemnation of human sin. And as I mentioned, that will continue for about two, two and a half chapters. So we're into the next section of this sort of sweeping condemnation of human sin. And therefore our need of the gospel, the good news of Christ. Um, He's been mostly focused up to this point on the Gentiles, on those who are particularly far from God, involved in idolatry and lots of uh, sexual immorality and all these other types of sin. Now he's going to sort of turn his attention to address the moral folk, (laughs) the religious people. Uh, The world is filled with religions which teach morality and good and right and wrong. What about all of these people who are maybe at least think themselves to be a cut above uh, the rest. The last section was all about sort of darkened minds, worshiping idols, sexual immorality. It would be easy for the religious people to read that and say, yeah, cheering on the judgment of God, but thinking they don't fall under that same situation. What about the religious folks? Look with me at chapter 2 of Romans, verses 1 through 16. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 16. We read this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 
This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and preaching and application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. First verses 1 through 5, religion. Religion won't save us. Verses 6 through 11, being good, won't save us. And then finally, 12 through 16, conscience. Conscience won't save us. Moral humans need the gospel just the same as everyone else. So looking at that first section, verses 1 through 5, religion won't save us. I think that's who he's primarily gearing his sort of this first section against. This is either the sort of religious Jew or perhaps the moral Gentile, sort of kind of lumping them together. He will deal with the Jewish people a little later in the next section, but he's saying there's no excuse for those who judge others, the moral, the religious, the good. Because passing judgment, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you practice the same things. By the way, Paul is using what's called a diatribe, where you kind of use, use a per, as if he's speaking to somebody right in front of him, you, O oh man, and just goes back and forth with the person. You practice the same, very same things in which you judge others about. Religious and moral people are still sinners. <laughs> the only addition is there's a sort of hypocrisy that hides our sin in religiosity. And look at Jesus, for example. Jesus' harshest woes were not against the prostitutes and the drunkards and the criminals. His harshest woes were against who? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the religious people in their hypocrisy. They're hiding behind their religiosity but still committing the same sins as everyone else. There's a certain blessing that comes with having a religious system, a sort of order to your life that God gives. And he says, are you looking at the kindness and the patience and the forbearance of God as if it's some stamp of approval on your life? No, he says it's the opposite. That very kindness and patience that God is giving you is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to lead you to realize the nature of your own sin and turn from it and turn to God as a savior. I like what C.S. Lewis said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So as long as you're looking down on everyone else, you're never looking up to God. Ultimately, what he's saying is religious people are the same as everyone else, storing up wrath for themselves on the day, the day of judgment. Now, is this too harsh? Uh, most human beings actually are religious. The idea that secularism is sort of taking over the world and atheism and so forth is certainly not true. Most of the world is actually claims some form of religion. In fact, it's just natural to human beings to look upward and try to worship something above yourself. And most religions, of course, teach people to be moral. Uh, statistically, 31% of the world is Christian, at least by name. Uh, so claim Christianity as their religion. 25% is Islam. By the way, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world, even though it is not, um, there's not as many who claim Islam as a faith as Christianity. 15% Hindu, of course, mostly in India and in that region. 5% Buddhist and less than 1% uh, Judaism. And then there's a whole bunch of other different uh, religions, of course, sort of native religions in China and Africa and so forth. 
And, and of course, there are major differences between religion. Anyone that says all religions are the same is someone who doesn't actually study religion because there's such major differences between them. But let's say you sort of minimize them to merely the morality that they teach and just try to find common ground in that morality. Okay, so there is sort of this tone maybe you could see throughout most of the world of teaching ethics, teaching morality. Has it worked? Most people are religious, and most religions teach us to be moral, and yet the world is still full of depravity, full of murder and theft and sexual sin and war and genocide and racism and every other sin you can imagine. In fact, you could even look at the religious and see horrendous things done in the name of religion, the Christian crusades, the jihadist Taliban, Hindu extremists, And countries that have been shaped by Buddhism, which is supposed to be peaceful, are some of the most deadly parts of the world. Maoist China and the killing fields of Cambodia. Religion hasn't brought us righteousness. Far from it. How should we think about religion? Well, one thing I would say is religion in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I wouldn't necessarily look at all religion as bad. It shows our longing for God. It shows our longing for God. If you look at a people untouched by any of the world religions, they'll come up with a religion of their own. Why? Because there's something within us that longs for God or for Eden. Longs for the paradise that we have lost because of sin. Has some sense of right and wrong. I'd also say be careful that Christianity doesn't end up being no more than a religion. That's all it is. I have to say, in the church that I grew up in, I felt like, I feel looking back in hindsight, certainly, that it was no more than basically any other religion in the world. That was not here, by the way. <laughs> Different church. Uh, I had an opportunity to uh, attend a Tibetan Buddhist ceremony, not to actually participate, of course, but to kind of sit back and watch it in place um, in a um, Tibetan refugee camp in Nepal. And one of the things myself and another pastor who was there, both of us came to the same conclusion. This reminded us of our Roman Catholic background. And I'm not picking on Roman Catholics, but that was my own experience. It just seemed like they were going through the motions and there was no difference than any other religion in this world. The gospel is something different than religion. The gospel is a message that God has sent his son in the flesh to rescue us. It's not about what we can do to sort of reach up to God. It's what God has done to save us from our depravity and our sin. Look at verses 6 through 11, though. He talks about goodness in a more general sense. This may be the most difficult uh, part, at least of this sermon, to interpret. Um, because what does he say here? It, it almost sounds like what he's saying is you're saved by works. He says that, of course, God will render each person according to his works. He will treat you as your works, your good works, deserve. By the way, that is a quote there, the rendering according to your works from uh, the Old Testament. It quotes from Psalms. It quotes from, it's a quote from Proverbs as well. It's a reference to multiple different passages that sort of refer to a judgment based on our works. And really, it's a good summary of what the entire picture of the Old Testament is saying about our works, that we are, in a sense, judged by our works. We'll talk about that in a second, what I'm getting at. Um, He says here, those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, 
they get eternal life. Those who self-seek, that they don't obey the truth, that they do unrighteousness, what awaits them? Wrath and fury. That's the result. Tribulation and distress, another sort of description of wrath or the judgment of God, uh, awaits all who do evil, Jew and Greek. God doesn't show partiality, religious and not. And glory, honor, and peace awaits all those who do good, Jew and Greek. God doesn't show partiality. All right, so now you're saying, Pastor Rick, doesn't that contradict everything we're saying about what the gospel is, that it isn't our works that save us? So I would say this. First of all, here's what he's definitely not saying in this section. That all you have to do is do enough good works in life. All you have to do is do like, more good works than bad works. <laughs> all you have to do is be a, a decent person, better than your next-door neighbor. And if you do that, you get to heaven. That's certainly not what he's saying. It would contradict the whole, of this, whole point of this letter. So here's how most have sort of wrestled with this. Uh, one, first he says here, those who seek what is good, he gives eternal life. We see that in scripture. Cornelius was one of the first Italian, the first Italian uh, convert. Cornelius is one who sought God. And what did God do? He brought a messenger, a missionary, the apostle Peter, who gave him the gospel. You see that around the world. Those who have a heart, who are seeking God, perhaps receive a dream, a vision. By the way, that's a pretty well accounted for, particularly in, in Muslim countries, that God is using dreams and visions. And usually what those dreams and visions do is give them an introduction to the gospel and then calls them to go meet a Christian <laughs> whom they don't even know. Uh, it's really interesting. I encourage you to read up on it. So what happens? Those who are seeking God brings them the gospel. They're not saved apart from the gospel but brought to the gospel. Others have pointed to the fact that this is the standard which God uses to judge the world. If you do, it's 100% true. If you do good, you'll have eternal life. If you do evil, you'll be judged. The problem is no one does good all the time. Nobody is able to fulfill this perfectly. All of us then end up in the section that says when you do evil... There is only wrath that awaits. There has to be a standard of good in order for us to understand that we've fallen short of it. D.L. Moody said the best way to show that a stick is crooked is not to argue about it, but to spend time denounce or, or to spend time denouncing it, but to lay a straight stick alongside of it. <laughs> in other words, here's the standard of good. How are you doing on this? Reflecting on your own heart and your own sin. Nobody stands able to pass the judgment. You could also refer to the fruit of the gospel, which is a transformed life. That God, in a sense, looks at the exterior fruit that we bear for those who truly know the Lord and whose lives have been transformed by him. And in the end, in the judgment, you see the good fruit brought about by a transformed life in the gospel or the opposite, sort of the sheep and the goats illustration. God puts the Jesus puts the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, but then looks at their work as a sort of sign of their judgment. How should we, how should we view goodness, though? First thing I would say about goodness is before it. Like D.L. Moody said, we should be for the straight stick. We should say absolutely what is good is good. Uh, if an atheist firefighter risks his life, maybe even dies to save someone else, he has done a good thing. And we can join him in saying, what he's done is admirable, it's good. If there is an agnostic philanthropist who is giving away 
her fortune, we can say that is good. They're seeking to do good in this world. We don't have to look at a Gandhi and say he's all bad. There is good that he has done in seeking to reach the untouchables, for example. But a reminder to us that it's impossible for us to do good perfectly. No one is perfect. No one can live up to this standard. That's his point. All of us fall short. One theologian said, when your goal is to reach the stars, standing on a mountain might make you a little bit closer. But you're still desperately short of reaching the goal. I'd also say that we should be known for our goodness. That our lives should be transformed by the gospel and that we should be able to present good fruit. Christians should outshine the world in good. (laughs) They should be doing the most good in the world, which demonstrates the transformed life that the gospel gives us. And one more thing. Pray and act towards bringing the gospel to people around the world who maybe are beginning to seek for God. That won't save them. Somebody has to bring a message to them about a Savior who has come from heaven, about the Lord Jesus. 12 to 16 then deals with the conscience, the inner conscience. Um, The law, by the way, here is a reference not to the laws of the land, not to the Supreme Court of the United States or something like that, the Constitution. The law is a reference to the Torah. And I think um, not really the entirety of the Torah, because the Torah includes promises of the coming Messiah and um, uh, lots of issues of grace and the sacrificial system, of course. But really, the law is a summary of the moral and the ceremonial aspects of the Torah. What we are commanded to do, think the Ten Commandments is a good summary. That is the law. And what Paul says is all who sin without the law without having the Torah, all Gentiles who don't have any sort of religious or moral standard, they perish without it. But all who sin with the law similarly are judged by that law. Jews and Gentiles together, in other words, whether you have the law or not isn't the deciding factor. The deciding factor is whether you actually obey the law. As he says next here, that's not the hearers of the law who are righteous. Having the Torah, reading the Torah, studying the Torah doesn't save you. The real question is, do you obey it? Take uh, an example from our laws. Again, that's not what he's talking about here. Imagine you get pulled over for going 80 in a 55. And the police officer, (laughs) somebody raised their hand. Um, Confession time, right, Albert? So uh, the police officer pulls you over and says, do you know what the speed limit is, Albert Henderson? Um, And you say, yes, sir, I do know. It's 55. Okay, as long as you know, keep going 80, you're all set. (laughs) The question isn't whether you know the law. The question is whether you followed it. And his point is, knowing what is right, knowing what is true, knowing the Ten Commandments, for example, doesn't save anyone. In fact, we stand under the judgment of the law for those who have it. In fact, he says here, the Gentiles who don't have the Torah, they don't have the law at all, well, they have sort of a moral law written on their hearts. They have a conscience. So they kind of have a sense, without ever hearing the Torah read to them in their entire life, they have a, a sense that you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't commit adultery, and so forth. 
And that conscience, he says, will accuse them or excuse them as they head to the day of judgment. They're, they're not without excuse. They have to face judgment just the same by the law that has been written on their very hearts. What saves us is the gospel, as he says, which reveals the secrets of men. What exactly is a conscience, though? What exactly is a conscience? Um, again, I mentioned this last week, but the idea of morality in general only makes sense if God exists. Right? So if, if we are no more than protoplasm and atoms and molecules at a certain temperature and gravitational force, right and wrong doesn't even come into it. Right? It's irrelevant <laughs> what you think. Might, someone might believe it's wrong to murder or commit some horrendous crime. Somebody else might disagree with them. There's really no overriding factor. There is no more morality above and beyond human beings if there is no God. God is the lawgiver and the enforcer of that law. So without God, the whole thing falls apart. But if God exists, and we know he does, and we are made in his image, then it makes sense that every person would have his law, in a sense, written on their heart. That have a sense of right and wrong. I mean, when you think about it, what is the law? Jesus summarized the law as, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. We find that concept all over the world. Um, there's a story of the famous rabbi Hillel. And somebody asked Hillel, um, actually they asked the two famous rabbis of Jesus' time, Hillel and Shimei, can you recite the entirety of the Torah standing on one foot? And Shimei said no and refused to even answer the guy. And this is what Hillel did. He stood on one foot and he said, what is hateful to you, do not follow to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation of it. Go and learn. In other words, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. He recited the entirety of the Torah in one line. Ancient Greece, Plato said, May I be of sound mind and do to others as I would that they should do to me. Ancient Rome, we see the same thing with Seneca. Treat your inferior as you would wish your superior to treat you. Ancient Egypt in a papyrus, that which you hate to be done to you, do not do to another. Even sort of, I mentioned the three major religions, of course, but the Tao says, regard your neighbor's gain as your own gain and your neighbor's loss as your own loss. Jainism says, in happiness and suffering, in joy and grief, we should regard all creatures as we regard our own self. It's written in our hearts, do unto others as we would want done unto us. But that can't save us. That isn't what redeems us because we can't do it. Simply knowing it is not enough to save. But what if someone does respond to their conscience? What if they do respond to that inner pull to do what is right? He says it will defend them on that one issue. Just the same as an Israelite who obeyed one of the laws but broke the other laws. It doesn't save them. It doesn't redeem them. It simply defends them on the issue in which they were able to respond to their inner conscience. As James says, he who obeys one law but breaks the others is still a lawbreaker. If you stand before a judge and you are accused of murder and you say, but judge, I've been faithful to my wife. I've never committed adultery. He would say, good for you, but you're still guilty of murder. Right? You break one aspect of the law, you are guilty. Other aspects of their conscience will accuse them. 
Some have seen a sort of glimmer of hope here for the salvation of Gentiles who've never heard of the the living God. Uh, I wouldn't emphasize that. That goes against the whole direction and thrust of Romans. The emphasis here is the need of the gospel to save. And therefore the emphasis and calling towards missions. What do we think of the conscience as Christians? Again, all people have a conscience. By the way, that's why civilization is possible. (laughs) That's why I can live next door to my neighbor and trust that, generally speaking, she's not going to come and murder me in my sleep to take my stuff, right? People have a general sense of good and bad. Thank God for the fact that we do have a sense of morality. Even someone who is no knowledge of God still probably won't kill you in your sleep to take your stuff, right? But also understand that, as the scriptures say, some sear their conscience as with a hot iron. In other words, you can go against your conscience and go against it so many times that you're so comfortable in your sin that you don't even care anymore. And we see that happen all the time. But, you know, this is sort of a basis that we can sort of reach out to others. Use this as a witness. When you talk to someone, it's wrong to kill. Most people would agree it's wrong to steal. It's wrong to abuse. Again, here's the straight stick that we don't live up to. It's why we need a savior. Let me tell you about Jesus, right? People understand that. I'd also mention that as Christians, our conscience is quickened. It's an old word to mean brought to life. Um, Your conscience is brought to life in a certain way, a sensitivity to God's law. I've had many people who have come to faith in Christ and they start sort of living in a sinful situation. And, um, uh, and all, you know, we don't necessarily need to even say anything. Just pray for them. They'll come back and say, Pastor Rick, I feel so guilty about the situation I'm living in. Say, so, yeah, that's the Holy Spirit. He's sort of convicting you and leading you and guiding you. God makes our conscience alive as a guide. I would also just warn you as well, though, uh, sort of caution you. Our conscience is not enough. Um, it's a great guide and the Spirit uses our conscience, but that's not the same as understanding fully the truth. Um, I know people who are strong believers in Christ and yet their conscience is filled with guilt, a guilt that doesn't need to be there. Right? Their, their hearts are condemned in a certain way. I think of First John, uh, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Even the understanding of do unto others as you would want done unto you is a limited perspective. It needs to be fleshed out. Uh, if somebody's a masochist, you don't want them to do unto others as they would want done unto themselves, right? If someone's suicidal, if someone's a drug addict, you don't want them to do to others. So there are limitations. We need the bigger picture. We need the word of God. And sometimes someone's conscience, as we said, becomes so comfortable with sin that they feel no guilt in it, and that still is not enough to free us. We look to the scriptures as the solid truth upon which we stand. Moral humans need the gospel just the same to save us. The first section was all about sinful depravity. Here, he clarifies that those who are religious and moral and good are in no better place. You might say, what about Israel, Pastor Rick? Aren't they in a better place than everyone else? They're God's chosen people. We'll get to that next week, Lord willing. But if you remove the gospel from this world, all you have 
our futile longings and attempts to reach up to God that fall infinitely short. But God has given us something far better than human striving. Do you notice the way that Paul the Apostle speaks of the gospel? My gospel. It's not just a message. It's my message. (laughs) It's my gospel. It's the thing when I face the day of judgment for my sin, I will cling to as my very own. My message, my good news. A message that God has done what no human being can do for himself or herself. He has rescued us. Some people say religion is a crutch. It's a crutch to help us do better, right? You've heard that, I'm sure you've heard that before. I might even agree with that. But I'll tell you this, the gospel is not a crutch. The gospel is a spiritual resurrection from the dead. We don't just have a limp that makes it so we can't walk. We are dead in our sins and transgressions until God gives us a message that can make us alive. And he does that through a rescuer. He does it through his son, the Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you again for the gospel. We thank you for this walk through, uh, through Romans, which is a, a reminder and a clarification, Lord, of the power and the truth of the gospel and our need of it. We thank you, Lord, that the essential message of the Christian faith is not bad news. It begins with bad news. It begins with the message that all are under sin and are storing up wrath for a day of judgment. But that's not our message. Our message is that you, in Jesus, have saved us and rescued us. So help us then, Lord, as your people, to delight and rejoice and be grateful for the gospel, to celebrate it, to hold onto it, to cling to it as our very own, and to share it with our neighbors and to see it reach the ends of the earth that people might be redeemed and rescued from sin. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen.